You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Team Guru Podcast. As always, I'm your host, David Frizzell, and it's nice to have your company. Workplace culture. We all know how important it is to the productivity and profitability of an organization and to the general happiness and well-being of the people who are part of it. Great workplace cultures can be energizing and rewarding. Bad ones? Well, they can be toxic and soul-destroying. Ross Judd is my guest, and he thinks that we've been overcomplicating our efforts to reshape workplace culture. He's come up with a simple and effective process for transformation, and he's here to tell us all about it. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Ross Judd. Ross Judd, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you, Ross. I love your little book. Now, most of all, I love the topic, but I've got to say, I love the size of it. It's big enough that it's got a lot of fantastic information a lot of great advice, a lot of great stories from your career, but it's small enough that it's not daunting. You kind of look at it and you think, yeah, I could read that. That's achievable. Where so many books in this part of the world, in this part of thinking are not like that. No, thank you. I That was intentional and I get a lot of feedback about the fact that it is accessible and there's a nice synergy because the whole concept that I'm trying to get into the market is that we are overcomplicating culture. Yes. It doesn't need to be this complicated. Let's keep it simple. The fact that the book is short and simple, beautiful. You know, I'm pleased to say that I picked up on that. You were talking about <laughs> that early in the book and I thought that's why this book is so short because it is simple. It's a You're not dumbing it down. You're simplifying this whole idea of workplace culture. I love it. Now, let's get started. My, my regular listeners will know, Ross, that what I love doing at the beginning of these conversations is to rake over the coals of the muck. If we're going to talk about fixing cultures and working on organizational cultures, we know that there are some bad ones out there. And I want to extract from you some of the experiences that you've had so that I can relate to it and so my listeners can relate to it in the types of workplaces they've worked in or that they lead or they might be in right now. And then, of course, we're going to get to the good stuff. We're going to get to your fabulously simple model, of course, which talks us through a process for assessing and redefining and reshaping our own workplace culture. So are you up for that? I am indeed. Sounds good. All right. Now, tell me, Ross, when you think about the workplace cultures that most need your help, what are the sort of things that you're often walking into as a, as a cultural consultant? Look, the most common word I hear when I walk into a poor workplace is the word toxic. Uh-huh. So, you know, and it's interesting because one of the processes I advocate is to go and talk to people and listen to them and ask them. And when I ask people, you know, how would you describe the culture here? When they come back with the word toxic, it's, it's a bad sign. That's an alarm bell word, isn't it? It certainly is. And look, toxicity comes from so many places. You know, poor relationships between people, people have done things, they haven't talked about it, they've interpreted it poorly, 
they thought the other person was out to get them. They then end up in this almost feud, you know, feud-like state. Festering misunderstandings. Oh, absolutely. You know, and I've walked into places where, I can remember walking into one location where the, the operations managers, there were four, it was a 24-7 operation, and the, the operations managers would deliberately sabotage each other. So when one came in on shift, he would deliberately overturn the decision of the other one who had been on during the day, for example. That wasn't on a mine site, was it, Ross? No, that was actually in a prison. Was it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Tell us about that later on when we get to the bit where you're giving us some juicy stuff. I'd love to hear what goes on amongst the culture of prison guards. That's fascinating stuff. Now, carry on. Sorry, I'm great at interrupting. No, 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 that's fine. It's interesting because you weren't far off. Mine sites can get pretty bad as well. In fact, anywhere that's got basically shift patterns where one shift, you know, they go up against each other. I had another site where they have a, a stores, which is only open, you know, Monday to Friday, nine to five. So if you don't get milk, then you haven't got milk for your shift. So if the shift who's on day shift on a Friday doesn't stock the fridge up with milk, the shifts who come in over the weekend won't have milk for their coffee. Yeah. Nobody has to pay for it. It's all there in stores. You've just got to get to stores while they're open because they're locked over the weekend. You know, milk became a four-letter word on this site and it wow. was an indicative, you know, the word milk was indicative of how we treat each other and we treat each other poorly because we don't think about what someone else needs when they're here over a weekend, despite the fact that next weekend we're the ones that are there over the weekend and need our colleagues to think of us. It's crazy what goes on in some cultures. The reason I guess Mindsight was, there's two reasons actually, because we were supposed to have this chat a few weeks ago, but you were on a Mindsight, so you couldn't do it and we we rescheduled. So I, I thought I, I had a bit of info, inside information there, but I've actually spent a fair bit of time on Mindsights as a consultant, as a communication consultant in much the same way as you have. And those shifts that back onto each other, they can be either really fantastic where the A shift is setting up the site for the B shift because they're their brothers in arms, they're their comrades, you do it for us, we'll do it for you. And it can be this really nice kind of culture of handover, or it can be the exact opposite. If we get into this pattern where I think you leave the machinery in terrible places for me, or you leave the pit in this place or the pile and the stockpile in this kind of terrible situation then we will almost deliberately do the same back to you. And it can become this kind of festering wound that exists on the mind site. It sounds like it can be much the same in prisons, where again, they have that kind of day shift, night shift. There's no, no one is on both. It's kind of uh, your team and my team, and we either get on really well or we get on terribly. Exactly. And it can actually be the same anywhere. It can be the same in offices where that particular division didn't look after another division or that you know area or department didn't look after another department. It can be the same in any workplace environment. It shifts seem to particularly bring it out of people, but anywhere where there's a division, basically, where we need to think about something more than just just than ourselves, we need to think about our colleagues. It can come out there, and that can be any workplace environment. So, what's some of the worst stuff you've? you've seen, Ross, you've gone into an organization, it's been described as toxic. That's a bit of a catch-all phrase for stuff that's going badly. On a very specific level, what are some of the the sort of more outrageous behaviors that you've seen that have up until the point you've walked in the door been acceptable on some level in that workplace? It's interesting. The 
Most people, when they get into that state, they actually get very good at justifying their behavior. Yeah. So they will get into very poor behaviors, but then they'll blame the other person for that behavior. You know, well, I didn't get the milk because they didn't get it for me last weekend. Or, yeah, you know, I mean, that's a, that's a sort it's of trite example. Isn't it? it is. But yeah, people get into that kind of state very quickly and very easily. So that level of blame, you know, denial, it's not me, it's them. When that becomes the, you know, the bulk of the attitudes and behaviors at the site, the culture. It can just become, yeah, it becomes the culture and it becomes really toxic for the site. What's interesting is when you then ask people about it and ask people about the culture, they will actually have very good sound excuses and justifications for why they're okay and the problem is actually everybody else. And whenever I hear people talking like that, that's another big alarm bell because it's basically giving me insight that they're not taking responsibility, they're not seeing the culture as a collegiate environment. And the, obviously the most common people to be blamed when a culture is poor is the management of the company. And it's intriguing to me how often I will go in the and I'll ask people about the culture. They'll go into all of these stories about managers did this. I walked onto one site and it had a very strong union representation on the site and the union delegate really wanted a cultural change. So he was very supportive and so he came with me to do the cultural assessments. So as I went around, he was actually quite good at getting people to open up and you know tell me their honest truth, which may not actually be how someone else might perceive it, but it was how they perceived it. He was really good at getting them to open up and tell me stories. And, and they were telling me stories about managers and how they'd behaved and what they'd done and how bad they were. And there was one name that they kept you know bringing up. I didn't think anything of it. But then as I walked from you know that group to another group, I turned to the union delegate and I said, just tell me about that manager. And he kind of looked at me and went, oh, I can't believe that. I'm like, what do you mean? What what are you talking about? He said, that guy hasn't worked here for 12 years. Wow. Still blaming him. Yeah. And they're still going on about his behavior and how much it's, you know, scarred them. And yeah, it was just interesting that they're still caught in that mentality of blaming other people. It's incredible. And you you talked about the kind of behavior that people justify for themselves because those guys have done this to us. So we're doing this back. And if you, they were only able to get half a step back of perspective and, and see the kind of childish, immature, toxic behavior that they're engaged with, for no, no matter what the reason is in their own mind that they're doing it, but if they could just for a second step out and see it from that third position, it, even that would be a really powerful exercise. Absolutely. When somebody gets into that mindset, one of the great challenges loss of perspective. Mm. They've actually lost perspective. And that is one of the crippling aspects. They don't have that third position or that broader perspective on the situation. Whether it's a half-day energizer session or a comprehensive team and leadership program, Team Guru's unique approach could be just what the doctor ordered for your organization. Tell me, what is it like inside a prison for the staff? I mean, you've you hinted at problems, you know, that you experienced because you were there as a consultant. Sure, that's one situation. But in general, I've always been intrigued by the operations of a of a prison. What's it like? What was it like for you to go in and and visit that as an outsider? To be honest, it was a little bit scary at first, but that was just because of my misconceptions and my you know poor understanding of that whole environment. So I had all this thoughts in my head about what a prison environment would be like and you know it was nothing like that really 
it's actually quite a healthy working environment, although it's a dangerous working environment. So, you know, you are in with people that may choose to do harm. And when that happens, you need your brothers in arms to be around you. And that's one of the fascinating aspects of that environment is, is when someone needed help, no matter how toxic the environment was, help was always available. Wow. They always backed each other up in that sort of circumstance. So it was interesting. They almost had this ability to, to sort of be grumpy snap with each other it. and, yeah, but then snap out of it for the sake yeah. of safety. They, you know, if they, they obviously all had devices that would be emergency signals. And if one went off, everybody dropped everything and went to support their colleague. But it's an interesting environment. It's the ultimate institution, if you think about it. You know, it's a 24-7, it's an institution that's locked in, that's an environment that has limited interaction and limited impact from the outside world. And so it's, it's almost the ultimate environment to do a culture program because they have the opportunity to create their own reality. You know, it's different. It's like a vacuum. It is almost. It's different to other workplaces where you're influenced by, you know, what's happening from another client or a competitor or, you know, there's other people impacting what you are doing as a group. Whereas in that environment, there's not a lot of impacts other than each other. And if it gets out of control, it can get very challenging, let's just say that. But when it's healthy, it can be a great place to work. And fortunately, the experience I had was to take a prison. It took six years, but we took a prison from a toxic description to a healthy description of their culture. So we were able to turn this group and you know, change their lives, basically. I mean, when we work with culture, we are changing lives because culture is such a big part of our life. Our, our workplace culture makes a big difference to the quality of life. So, you know, we changed lives in that program. It was, it was a fabulous program to be a part of. And that, that's one of the points I was going to make at some point through this conversation was while we're talking about the toxicity or, or even the positive cultures that exist within workplaces and the impact that has on our ability to do our job effectively, the bottom line for the business or the quality of the services that we deliver, above all of that, this place is where human beings go for eight or 10 hours of their day, five days a week. So that is having a huge bearing on their overall life happiness. Workplace culture is human life. And that's one of the main reasons I'm so interested in it as a topic. Sure, it's great to get organizations humming and feeling good and being more profitable and more effective. But for me, my real interest lies in the fact that they're all human beings in there existing in this. And not everyone can just leave their emotions at work. In fact, very few people can really do that. So if we're talking about a toxic workplace, we're talking about something that is affecting every life that's involved in that. Absolutely. And it's quite, you know, I've been doing this work through my own business for over 20 years. And those examples and those stories, when we've made that sort of change and we've made that difference, uh, you know, that's why I do it. It's heartwarming. It's fantastic. You know, the last time I visited the prison, I haven't been there for a while because, you know, our program got to a conclusion, as every program should. And uh, last time I went in there, the difference in the energy, the difference in mood, you know, life, happiness, well-being was palpable, was visible. Yeah, so it is. It's a rewarding part of doing this type of work. You know, we, I know we're making a difference. And I'm guessing that you used your five-step process in that prison, which is what you're going to talk us through in a few minutes. But before we get there, I just wanted to ask 
what is the normal situation in which a leader will say, all right, we need someone in here to help us with this. We have got a problem here. Is it usually an event that is symptomatic of, of the bubbling culture that exists? Or is it get on the front foot and be really positive and just fix something that's good and turn it into great? Or is it something else? What is it that usually motivates a leader to get on the phone to you? Historically, the motivation has been some kind of problem. And that's actually one of the mistakes I think people are making. And I address that in my book, which is, you know, don't be reactive about culture. You need to get on the front foot with culture. But historically, I would be contacted because, you know, that someone got a poor result in an engagement survey mm. or there was a problem between some people or there were complaints about a particular leader or, or some sort of problem in the, you know, they're just frustrated that they can't get anything done. I had one guy contact me. He's just, you know, frustrated that he just couldn't get things delivered. He was just, and he actually rang and said, look, I want an accountability program. I want to be able to hold people to account. I'm like, well, let's talk about that. That accountability may not actually be the issue here. You may actually have a deeper cultural problem, you know. And then when we talked about it and explored it, we discovered, yes, there was a cultural challenge in the organization. So often it's some sort of frustration. Historically, that's been the main reason people contact me. More recently, people are contacting me because they want to get on the front foot and they're not 100% sure how to do that. Or then they're frustrated that the culture program they've engaged isn't working. So you, you asked me about, you know, the adapt process that's in the book. I didn't actually use that with the prison. And I kind of, that's where I started realizing, you know, we, we've actually got this process wrong. So I started the prison project back in 2009 when the whole industry around culture was all focused on culture change, we were all applying a change methodology to culture. And I realized as we went through that process, it was hard work. You know, it was long, slow, and I realized this is not the right approach. And I can remember talking to the general manager of that prison and saying, look, we need to do something different. You know, they don't have a compelling reason for why we are doing what we're doing. We, we need to get them linked to a greater purpose and it was that realization we actually in that we took the leadership team off site. We talked about why do we exist, you know, and the colloquial, you know, the normal reason is, well, we exist to keep prisoners locked up. And as we talked about it more and more, the, you know, prison officers, the senior prison officers started to talk about, you know, it's more than that. We actually need, they're all going to be released at some, well, most of them will be released at some point. And we want them to go back into the community as good, healthy citizens. So they need to learn that somewhere. Where are they going to learn that? They need to learn that from us. Wow. And so they then started to see themselves and they actually defined their, model. yeah, as a role model. And they defined their purpose as community safety, which meant we've got to keep them in and we've got to make sure we're delivering healthy humans back into the community when, when they're released. Jeez, that's reassuring to hear. Yeah. It, and look, that was one particular prison and it, and it's went on to be adopted by the whole, that was in Victoria. And it went on to be community safety, went on to become the purpose for the Department of Corrections. So it was, um, it was a good, I mean, they, I think they did that independently. I'm, I'm not sure I can take credit for that. But anyway, it's a great thing when the whole department's focused on that. Sorry, that, that taught me a valuable lesson. And the valuable lesson was if you're doing culture work, you've got to you know, tag it to a, a bigger purpose. You've got to give people a compelling reason to do this. And that's where the ADAPT model was born out of that experience. Fabulous. And we're going to get to that next. Just after I ask this one last question, 
You mentioned there at some point coach programs that don't work, whether they're run internally or, or run by someone else. What is the, the most common mistakes we make, even in a well-meaning cultural program? You've, you've talked about one of the other lessons I got out of what you said and what I read in your book is that it's important to get on the front foot. Let's not wait until we're you know, neck deep in slush of a toxic organization before we do something about that. Let's, let's get on the front foot and, and get on top of this and create the culture we want when things are okay. That's a great lesson. But what are some of the things that we get wrong when even well-meaning people try and proactively do something about the culture? There are a number of mistakes, or what I think are mistakes, and I'll talk to sort of the ones I'm most passionate about, and they've, they've come out of my experience. So one of the big mistakes organizations are making is they're just overcomplicating the whole process, and they're misrepresenting the whole process. And they're doing that because they want numeric data to measure yeah. culture. And that's just, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. It doesn't make sense in my opinion. The minute you try to turn culture into a number and you use a survey to assess culture, you just build cynicism, you build, you know, a lack of commitment. It just makes the whole process a lot harder. And I've seen, and I've been part of it. I mean, I was doing that, you know, 10 or more years ago and I've seen, you know, a half a day spent just by leaders in an organization, just trying to understand the statistics and the numeric and the definitions that were used in the questions and what those questions meant. And it's like, wow, this is, that just, yeah, it just was a waste of time. So the whole process of using a survey, I know I'm tilting at windmills here because everybody wants a survey, but the whole process of using a survey to assess your culture builds cynicism. Mm. And it's one of it's the so biggest impersonal. mistakes. Yeah, it's impersonal. It turns it into a number. People don't actually feel heard. The analogy I use in the book is how often do you get asked to do a customer survey it's by somebody that you just bought a product and it, yeah. it didn't ask you the questions that you wanted to answer. Like that's yeah. my experience, yeah. you know, and a survey will only ask what we think think of when we design it, if our culture changes, because culture should be a shifting phenomenon. So what you need today may not be what you need in a couple of years. And as you shift your culture, you should be redefining it. I probably didn't talk about that enough in the book, but the whole process as you move through your culture journey, you could actually redefine your culture a number of times. And so this whole idea of we use a static survey that we're still using 10 years later yeah, just doesn't make Flawed. sense to me. So that's a big one. I'm very passionate about that one, as you can tell. All right. Well, let's get to the good stuff then. I'd love to hear about your, your process, the, the ADAPT process and what it means and how you came up with it and, and how it works in, in, in the way that you roll it out. Let's hear all about it. Okay. How long have you got? <laughs> We've got uh, 12 or 13 minutes. <laughs> Great. Look, the ADAPT process evolved as I worked with clients. I tried some other processes, but it, it finally sort of you know meshed and became ADAPT, which is actually very suitable. I love the acronym because it's quite appropriate. It is. I like acronyms. The, the intent of an acronym is to help remember. So I do get there'll be people out there thinking, oh, another acronym. I do get that acronyms aren't perfect, but this one works and it helps you remember the essential steps. And the first and most essential step is the A, which I've dubbed as align with purpose. And it, I deliberately called it align with purpose because it's not about trying to create one of the, another mistakes companies are making is they're trying to come up with a purpose statement and they're trying to make that purpose statement apply to the whole organization. Mm. That's not the way to do it. Come up with a purpose statement for the company 
and then ask all of your leaders to have a conversation with their site or area or team or whoever they lead to talk about what their purpose is in the context of the company purpose. And if they come up with a different statement, that's okay so long as it's aligned with the company purpose. Alignment is what you need, not a uniform definition of purpose. It's easy for people to disengage with a, a purpose that's emailed around to everybody and it doesn't quite sit with them. That is, that is not quite our purpose. So as a cynic, I can just w- wipe that away and say, well, that doesn't apply to us. What a silly process that is right from the start. Exactly. And imagine what your organization would be like if people, you know, if, if all of the leaders were talking to their teams and saying, look, here's the company purpose. Mm. Now let's have a conversation about what our purpose is. What do we need to do? And what's our role in helping to deliver that purpose? So what's our purpose as a team in delivering that purpose? That's what the align with purpose step is all about. Um, And I like it to be, yeah, and most companies miss that exactly. And instead they end up with cynical teams who, you know, who don't want to do that. So that's step one, align with purpose. Now, often step two gets blended together with step one. So step one and two are the two most powerful parts of the whole process. So align with purpose and then the D is to discuss or to define the culture that you need to deliver that purpose. And I kind of prefer to define it, but people are getting a bit confused by that term. We're not looking for a definition that makes everybody understand. We're looking for a simple word that we can use that will trigger the conversation, basically. We need people discussing the culture. So one of the things I advocate strongly is if you want to build a culture, talk about the culture. Be conscious and consciously build the culture that you need. So talk about what are we trying to achieve and then talk about what culture do we need to deliver on that. And again, you need each leader in the organization talking about the culture they as a team need to adopt to deliver the company's culture and the company's purpose. I like the way those two work together. You've got us to think about very specifically about what is our purpose as a team or a group or a department in the overall organizational purpose, that purpose that is very relevant to us. And then we say, okay, so we we get that. We believe in that, which is a, a great step forward compared to where we used to be. Now, let's imagine if that's true and that's our goal and our vision, what is the kind of culture we'll need to create in order to achieve that? I get that. That works really nicely. When you talk about that definition or that, that definition statement, what do they sound like? Are these big rabbiting paragraphs or are they, are they, as you say, one key word? What's a good example that you remember from someone you've worked with who've come up with a really neat one? So they are as much as possible, they're one word. And the reason for that is because I don't want to try to define it. I actually want to discuss it. So yeah. just keep talking about it. Some examples, I work, oh, so the prison came up with respect. That came out of this mantra that they had, which was they need to learn respect. If they don't learn it from us, who will they learn it from? We don't respect each other, so we have to role model respect. So we need a culture of respect. I had a manufacturing site. They used two words, so they came up with trust and respect. We need to trust each other and respect each other. I worked with an auditing group. They audited the state public service. Their new mantra from their new Auditor General was, to improve the public service. That was their purpose. So we're not here just to be gatekeepers and to find fault. We're here to actually set new standards and improve the public service. And they decided that professionalism was the culture that they needed. They needed to be really professional in the way they interacted with each other and with their customers, which was the public service. The funny thing about those examples, professionalism, trust, and respect, is that you could look at them and say, geez, they're such a cliche. And they would feel like a cliche if they were emailed to you. 
But if you're part of the conversation that has aligned your purpose with the purpose of the organization and then had a chance to have this really wholesome conversation about the type of culture we'll need to achieve that purpose, then yeah, maybe you will land on words that on the outside to an outsider will sound a bit cliche, but you worked at that conversation. You worked it over as a group of engaged people. And those kind of words do spit out of those exercises. I've experienced it myself, but it's the value of the conversation that got you there, which is the important part. Absolutely. Well said. I'll give you a quick example. I've worked with a retail group. They had stores in high traffic areas, so train stations, you know, airports, and they decided that their culture needed to be responsive. People needed you know, to interact with responsive people. And so what they asked all of their managers, their store managers, they had hundreds of them across the country, was to go and talk to their staff about how can we be more responsive? How do we become a responsive organization? How do we respond to each other? How do we respond to our customer? The whole point is the word is there to trigger a conversation. Yeah, it's yeah. not there to be a definition. If all you're going to do is email it and put it on the wall, forget about it. Yeah. It's actually there to trigger a conversation. Yeah, I like that. You've said that a few times is that the power is in the conversation. Even in even in people who join the group after you've had this wonderful facilitated conversations that Ross runs, people who come on board, you say, all right, this is what we stand for. This is the definition of our the culture we want. And it might sound like a cliche, but let's have a conversation about that. What does that mean to you? What are you going to see from us and from each other? What do you expect of yourself? And what do you expect to not see from yourself? They're the kind of things that we can talk about, even to people who come after this process. All right. I like it very much. We're talking through the ADAPT process. We've talked about align and define What's the second A stand for, Ross? That stands for assess your current culture. Mm. So do an assessment. So survey, of course. You want to send yeah, out a blind survey and just get people to sit there in the dark and fill that out. Now, you knew I was not going to suggest <laughs> survey. Now, this is where I advocate strongly go out and talk to people. This is actually the only step. So part of my approach is I'm not a big fan of the consultant doing all of this work. As much as possible, I actually want the leaders in the organization to facilitate these conversations to do this work because that's who needs to do it. That's who needs to be held accountable for culture. They, and if leaders don't have that skill, then let's teach them those skills because that's what gives you a sustainable culture long term. If I facilitate the conversations, then it's debatable how sustainable it is. When leaders facilitate them, they stick. So this is the only step where I do advocate you need to use an external partner and they need to come in and they need to talk to people, listen to people. And what we're listening for when we do that is what are the consistent themes, the consistent messages, and you know the stories that people are telling each other. You can learn so much about a culture by talking to the people and hearing some of the examples. And it's, it's amazing what we learn. And it's often amazing how often we will uncover something that a survey just didn't even get close to discovering. What's, what, what shape do those type of conversations usually take? When, even when you've prepared the leaders to have those, so they're, they're real, they're coming from their direct leader or manager, what's the shape that you're teaching them to have? So I'm not preparing the leader to do the assessment part, uh, right. but the other conversations in defining right. and aligning to purpose, shaping the leader to do those parts. Okay. Um, and they're facilitated conversations. And oh. a lot of the time, what we're teaching leaders to do is listen. Yeah, I get you. It's the assess part. You think you, you actually could get some value from an external facilitator to do the assess. Yes. I actually advocate you need right. to use an external facilitator. Yeah, And that's because when you're in a culture, you will not assess it 
the same way that someone external would assess it. You're when you're in a culture, you see things through the attitudes and behaviours of that culture. So, for example, earlier we talked about, you know, if somebody's in, in denial or in blame or in justifying, and if you're part of that culture, you might be in that state yourself. And so you might think, you know, that the people that are being blamed are the problem and you won't do the same sort of assessment that an external person who's completely, and who's got some experience with this, would do. So you need an external person, you need someone with a bit of experience with multiple companies so that they can compare what they're hearing. Because often when we're assessing, we're actually interpreting and reading between the lines. So people will talk about something and we actually need to understand what, what they're really saying. Yeah, what they're really saying. And a lot of the time I'm listening to somebody thinking, what's the attitude and behavior sitting behind that comment? You know, What are they thinking that drives them to say that? That's what I want to try and understand is, you know, the attitudes and behaviours behind that. So it's a careful art that we need some experience for. All right, so align, define, assess, and what's P all about? Okay, so P is a fantastic. P is good fun. P is to plan. Now, depending on the size of your organisation, what you would do is bring together a group of people and get that group of people to talk about. Now we've got some knowledge about the culture that we need. So that was back in the D, the define. And then now we've got an assessment of our current culture. You need to talk about, do a gap analysis of the two mm -hmm. and then talk about how do we bridge the gap from where we are to where we need to be. And there are some guidance around that. You know, we need to understand the stories that are being told. We need to understand the, the systems that drive behavior. We need to understand the leadership that's driving behavior. And we need to understand the symbols in our organization that people are interpreting and that then drives attitudes. So it's, it's a fascinating piece of work to get a group of people together to talk about, all right, the stories part of that is really a lot of fun. What stories are driving the mindset of our organization and are we interpreting them correctly? Should, do we need different stories or do we need to reframe those current stories? How do we think through those? How do we talk through those? It's actually a challenging and fun conversation to have. So the planning bit is the gap analysis between the culture we've, we've said we need and the culture we've assessed that we've currently got. And I, I love the three categories there. Where we talk through the stories that exist within our organization and the, and the ones that we need to change them to. We talk about the way leadership is applied, and we talk about the symbols that exist. I love it. It sounds great, Ross. It, it really is very convincing. And systems, sorry, symbols and systems. Great. Yes. Thank you. Yep. All right. And lucky last, T for? The, now, this is T is transform. So as you apply that plan, this is the simplest and hardest part of the whole process because <laughs> this is the execution. So execute your plan, transform your business, and enjoy the ride. There's nothing quite like a group of people when they get that they can improve their lives by working on and deliberately building the culture that they need and that they desperately want to be part of. So one of the points I make is that everybody wants to be part of a good culture. We talked about impact on life earlier. Everybody, even your most cynical, negative, they want to be part of a good culture. So when they get to this point, people start to get quite excited and they'll start implementing their plans. And this is where leadership really needs to follow through, to be committed, to be humble and to accept feedback and to work with their people. You know, if leaders learn to listen and work with their people, anything is possible because your people will really come to the party if you are willing to listen, if you're genuine and humble about it. It's a bit like making good choices for your personal health. You know, if you start eating well and doing a bit of exercise and then you notice your clothes are fitting a little more nicely and the scales are giving you a good number, 
it motivates you to keep doing the good eating and the exercise. It's this really positive cycle. I imagine that it's a bit the same in an organizational culture with behaviors. You've worked through this process with a group of people. They've bought in. They're willing to try it. They try these new behaviors, these very specific things that you talked about in the plan stage, and they see that it's actually having a positive effect. The workplace is working better. The relationship between these different groups or these different teams is better. We're enjoying ourselves a little bit more and our life is more fulfilling. It just encourages us to keep going with it, I'm guessing. Absolutely. One of the challenges in that process is you do need to point that out to people sometimes. So when they're in it and they're experiencing it, they just start to take the changes for granted and often don't realize things have actually changed. It's interesting how often I'll go and talk to a group and say, you know what, you guys weren't talking like this 12 months ago. And they'll go, oh, yeah, you're right, we weren't. You know, it's interesting because they're in it. It's, you know, I hate the analogy, but the frog, um, boiling frog frog in the boiling water analogy or in the cold water. It's, you know, it's like that when we're in the culture and we're, we're just part, it's like your children, you, as they grow, you kind of don't really notice. And then one day you go, well, hang on a second, when Look did you get big that you are. Yeah. And it's, yeah, exactly. So it's kind of like that when people are in the culture, they kind of one day go, oh, wait a minute. Hey, that was really different. Hey, this is different. This is great. I guess it'd be really easy to go back in your process and pluck out the things that we talked about when we were assessing our culture way back then before we started this and remind them of the stories they told you and the things they said about themselves. And, and it's like showing you a photo of your, your, your son who's now 10 when he was five, and you say, oh, wow, that's right, I forgot that. You could go back in your process and pull out some of that material, I guess. Exactly. And that's one of the benefits of doing interviews and focus groups and a qualitative approach to assessing your culture. One of the disadvantages of surveys is you can go back and compare numbers But that's not as powerful as comparing stories and reminding people what they were saying and reminding people what the examples were that they used and and how they were talking. That's far more powerful, you know. And I suggest to people, if you're assessing culture, do it every two years or so. So don't do it too frequently. It's kind of like, you know, that's just too much pressure. And it's interesting in in a two-year – Yeah, but also don't leave it too long. But in a two-year period, it's amazing how much things will have changed and you can start talking about, you know, you, you guys you weren't talking like this two years ago. And those examples are very powerful. I like it very much, Ross. The ADAPT model, align, define, assess, plan, and transform. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast, Ross. Thank you so much. You're very, very welcome. Thank you. And that was Ross Judd. You can tell how much he loves this stuff. And his model, developed and refined over time, is simple and convincing. Adapt. Align with your purpose. Define the culture you need to achieve your purpose. Assess what you've got right now. Plan to move from A to B and transform. Apply the plan. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Ross on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud or LinkedIn and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.